This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, you're going to need to have them open to uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. We're going to be bouncing to a couple of other passages in our time together, but we're going to start there. Today's message is emotionally taxing. We are covering two biblical truths that take us to the extremes. Hell and heaven. In my view, the, uh, th- these two topics have been pushed to the periphery, particularly over the last two or three decades um, in the developed world. Martin Marty, an American church historian, after observing this trend over the years, commented saying, hell disappeared and no one noticed. There are numerous reasons for this. Our postmodern relativistic culture uh, creates autonomous definition writing, wherein everybody is free to define what love is for him or herself. We very naturally are biased towards ourselves as the human race. And we have grossly underrated the holiness of God. All of this mixes together to come up with a contorted theological concoction. We need to talk about hell because it's unavoidable if we're faithfully reading the scriptures. Jesus talks about hell more than any other New Testament character, so we need to talk about it. But in every context wherein Jesus teaches about it, he doesn't do it to satisfy idle curiosity. He does it with a purpose. Most often, to warn those heading there. So they turn and avoid it. Whether it was Jesus or the New Testament writers, when you read them slowly and carefully, you realize that they appeal to a number of different heart motivations in order to persuade people to follow Christ and embrace the gospel. Fear, the burden of guilt, shame, the future of heaven, the attractiveness of truth and a desperate sense of need are among those heart motivations the New Testament writers appeal to in their hearers when writing, preaching, or teaching for conversion. So when you look at the myriad of ways in which Jesus talks about hell, you realize he's not just informing them. He's attempting to persuade them. And he's doing so through the heart motivation of fear. Specifically, fear of eternal punishment. 
Yes, it is biblical to incite fear of God in those who have not fled to Jesus for salvation. Now, heaven has been ignored nearly as much, particularly in the West, because frankly, we've got it good. We've got comforts and conveniences, leisure abounds, luxurious vacation spots to explore. Why would we take the time to think about a place that may only be marginally better? In fact, as some ill-informed Christians have it worked out in their heads, that heaven seems a bit bland. Floating on clouds, harps in hands, singing constantly. Well, if that's your picture of heaven, I don't blame you for being disinterested in it. When we see the picture, the scriptures paint of heaven, you'll want to talk about it. You'll want to think about it more than you currently do. Before we dive in, I want to pray. Father, we praise you that you have disclosed yourself to us so richly and wonderfully in your most holy word. Here we find things to encourage us when we are discouraged, to rebuke us when we are vain, to instruct us when we are ignorant, to humble us when we are proud to build us up when we are crumbling. Thank you that in your word we discover in matchless terms the dimensions of your love. So great is your love, you have sent your son, your exact imprint in the radiance of your glory to graciously and mercifully communicate with us. And in this communication, you have warned us of sin and your just justice against it. But you have also disclosed to us the eternal life Jesus has secured for those who repent and believe the gospel. We pray that you would work powerfully and mightily in our time together this morning. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. 2 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This church in Thessalonica had become a source of boasting in a good way for Paul because of their steadfastness and faith through persecutions and afflictions. They have demonstrated a refusal to renounce their faith in the face of intense local opposition to them. And it's not just their faith they have refused to renounce. They have exercised faithfulness in maintaining their beliefs and practices inculcated by Paul. So let's pause here for a moment because I think it's worth 
a couple of minutes of reflection on something that's implied in the text. Now, we know from chapter 2, verse 14, these Christians were facing persecution and affliction from society, fellow Thessalonica citizens. Here's the question. How does a society get Christians to renounce their faith? How do they do it? It doesn't appear to be the case in this circumstance that these Christians were threatened with imminent death. No one was holding a gun to their heads. How does society get Christians to renounce their faith if it's not employing drastic measures like imminent threat of death? You probably think, well, I mean, come on, a society can't get me to change what I believe is true. I believe what I believe. It's up here, it's in here. I believe what I believe. That's not going to change. What seems to have been happening in Thessalonica is that local citizens were pressuring the Thessalonian believers to suspend the practice of their faith. It wasn't stop believing what you believe. It was rather stop practicing what you believe. Stop attending church. Stop praying together. Stop worshiping together. Stop doing the Bible study in the coffee shops. Stop talking about your faith with others in public. Getting people to stop practicing what they believe is the first step in getting them to stop believing what they believe. I hope you see the enormous implications of this. Getting you to have a tepid commitment to gathering for worship each Sunday, whether in person or online, at least for the moment, is an effective first step in getting you to have a tepid commitment to Christ himself. Because what you believe is powerfully shaped by what you do. So Paul is saying in the face of tremendous hardship, the Thessalonians kept practicing their faith. Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. This is evidence. What is evidence? What is the antecedent of the word this? It's the right Bible study question. Good rule of thumb, whatever immediately precedes this. In this instance, the persecutions and afflictions the believers were dealing with at the hands of fellow citizens. That is actually the righteous judgment of God as a way of counting them worthy of the kingdom. So for you and I to experience persecution and affliction for practicing our Christian faith is God's just judgment of us in order to test and prove the genuineness of our faith. Question, when's the last time someone told you that? Has anybody ever told you that? Have you ever been told that? Have you ever been told that hardship 
is the infirmary whereby we are prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. This is actually something Paul taught routinely. Acts chapter 14, Paul is preaching, and here's what he says. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In context, we're told Paul taught this idea everywhere and to everyone, especially new Christians. New Christians. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God considers it just. And in the end, that's all that matters. This is the beginning of Paul's teachment on the final judgment in this passage, what God will do in the final judgment. God considers to be just. Notice God is not going to confer with the committee. He is not going to gather a group of Christian leaders to figure out what is the just thing to do. God unilaterally determines what is just and what is not. He's not interested in our personal opinions. Now, what specifically does God consider to be just? What does it say? To repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's just. It's God being just. The local citizenry have made life very difficult for the Thessalonian believers. And the words that Paul uses to describe their experience, vivid persecution, afflictions. These are not just everyday struggles, but particularly challenging hardships at the hand of premeditated conspirators. So this experientially challenging hardship is what God will inflict upon those who afflict the Thessalonian believers, and it would be unjust for God not to do so. Now remember something. When God repays the Thessalonian citizenry with affliction, God is manifesting his love and goodness and holiness and glory all at once. Verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, as Paul's experienced that too, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So it's also just for God to grant relief to believers who've been persecuted and afflicted. But when? When Jesus returns. So what's happening now? What's happening now to the Thessalonian believers and those who afflicted them? What's happening now? This text doesn't answer that question. We know elsewhere, Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's where the Thessalonian believers are now. But we must also say their day of relief is still in the future because Jesus hasn't come back yet. Likewise, we also need to say that the persecutors of the Thessalonian believers have not been repaid with affliction. That date is still a future date because Jesus hasn't come back yet. Second half, verse 7, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
There are a handful of places in the Old Testament where flaming fire or flames of fire are linked with the judgment of God. Let me give you one from Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. This isn't simple retaliation on God's part or an irrational outburst of anger, but an execution of God's just judgment. Look at what happens in verse 8. It turns out the persecutors of the Thessalonian believers aren't the only ones who will be recipients of God's just judgment. They belong to a much larger group, which includes those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, the lack of knowing God that Paul refers to here isn't merely failing to recognize his existence. Rather, it's a rejection of his person. Romans 1, Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to him. So for Paul, knowing God is is much more than a general intellectual assent to his existence. Knowing for Paul is an entire life direction. It's living in submission to God. It's living with humble gratitude towards God. That's what knowing God is. And therefore, the next phrase that follows is closely parable to that thought. Those who suffer divine vengeance are those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The New Testament frequently describes the act of conversion as obedience to the gospel. We read just a couple of places where it does this. In Acts chapter 6, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Conversion is described as someone becoming obedient to the faith. Romans chapter 6, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So becoming a Christian isn't merely about intellectually agreeing to certain things. It's also about an entire life direction, obeying the gospel, obeying the faith, obeying the standard of teaching. And in our passage, text is saying that God will inflict vengeance on those who have not lived like this. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's a grim reality taught in a number of different places. Rather than expounding them, I just want to read a few. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, in referring to a future act of Jesus, says his, Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
Jesus speaking in Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. At the end of the age, God, through the Apostle John, says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus, speaking in Matthew 28, says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. After reading all this, one walks away with the unmistakable impression that there is something experientially worse than death. Paul concludes this section with, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Those who do not know the Lord and those who have not obeyed the gospel will be excluded from the presence of the Lord. For Paul, exclusion from the glorious presence of the Lord is the flip side of salvation. Salvation is to be with the Lord always. We saw that last week. Apostle John says something similar in Revelation 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. New Jerusalem is portrayed as the new dwelling place of God in the eternal state. The state of the lost is outside the city, separated away from the presence of the Lord. When will this all commence? Verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. When he comes, he'll be present with his people. and We all will marvel, marvel at him. Jesus spoke on hell numerous times, but not for the sake of satisfying idle curiosity. He spoke of it to persuade. Persuade people to repent of sin and turn in faith to him alone for salvation. And that needs to be the case whenever we talk about it. 
when we teach on it, when we write on it. Simple questions we can ask ourselves. Have we done what is necessary to avoid it? Can it be said of us that our life direction demonstrates knowledge of God and obedience to the gospel? If not, there's still time. Flee the wrath of God to come and run to Christ for salvation. Now, I want to ask and answer three questions. Normally, I wouldn't do this in the context of a sermon, but over the years, I have noticed uh, lots of questions people have about hell, and these three tend to be the ones that make repeated appearances. Um. By answering these, I am not saying that these are the answers to these questions. These are tough questions. Uh, We need to be careful about obsessing over that which God has hidden. But I want to offer just my own reflections on these questions that I've been asked on numerous occasions. First question is this. How can believers enjoy heaven knowing so many are in hell? How can believers enjoy heaven knowing so many are in hell? There are a couple of thoughts that come to my mind when I hear the question. And the first one is, does God enjoy heaven? Does God enjoy heaven? The descriptions of heaven certainly seem to indicate that. I don't know that I could take you to a passage of scripture that says God does not enjoy heaven. So if he does, do we fancy ourselves more merciful and compassionate than God? Well, God may be able to enjoy heaven, but I can't. I just can't. God might be able to do that, but I can't. Knowing there are so many people suffering in hell, I just can't. God can, but I can't. Do we fancy ourselves more merciful and compassionate than God? If God can enjoy his heaven and his angels and his redeemed family while hell exists, can't we? Another thought to consider, perhaps the knowledge of hell and the people in it will be one of those things which God promises to erase from our minds. God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah Isaiah 65, and says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Perhaps believers will have no knowledge of hell while we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. How about this question? What about the difference between Hitler and good people? The way in the original context in which I heard this question was, what about the difference between Hitler and soccer moms? I wasn't touching that. I was not going there. What about the difference between Hitler and good people? Right? We all bring up the biggest names, Hitler, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Stalin, all that. I get that, but what about all the nice people out there?
My response is that all the lost will go to the same hell, but not all will spend it the same way. Let me show you where I get that from. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 11. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is speaking of the day of judgment, and he's uses the language of more bearable, more tolerable, as if there are degrees of bearability and tolerability. Another place where Jesus seems to indicate that is Luke 12, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will but receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. My personal belief is that there will be degrees of punishment in hell, just as there will be degrees of blessing in heaven. These texts seem to teach that. In both passages, Jesus makes it clear that the greater the opportunity, the greater the knowledge, the greater the punishment. Perhaps other factors will be taken into consideration too like the level of evil committed, the number of people harmed. Third question, what about the innocent guy in Africa? What about the innocent guy in Africa? Very quickly, I want to to read some of Romans for you. What about the innocent guy in Africa? Just listen, Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So God has, first principle is that all people have knowledge of God the Father. Take that to the bank. All people have knowledge of God the Father. God has revealed himself to all human beings, whether it's the man in the African jungle, the Asian village, the Eskimo in the forgotten tundra. All people have knowledge of God the Father. It's clear. It's plain. It's sufficient. All people are without excuse for that reason. Let's keep reading. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the, the, the worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the human condition. All of us in this room, while we have true knowledge of God the Father, we have rejected it. 
We've all rejected it. There are no innocent people in the world. It's Paul's point. His conclusion to his thought is in chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, no one is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. So if you were to ask me, Brian, what happens to the innocent guy in Africa who has never heard the gospel? My answer to you, based on what I believe the word of God teaches very clearly, my answer would be that man undoubtedly goes to heaven without question. He will spend eternity in heaven, even though he's never heard the gospel. The only problem is that guy does not exist. The reality is no one person in Africa or anywhere else is innocent. If they were innocent, they would have no need for the gospel. If they're already in a state of innocence, the worst thing we could possibly do is send a missionary to them. The reason they need to hear the gospel is because at this moment they stand guilty before a holy God. That's why we take the gospel to them. I hope you see how we bias this question toward ourselves and away from the holiness of God at every turn. And we look for opportunities to point towards the injustice of God. And the reality is that every one of us in this room is guilty before a holy God. At the end of this section in Romans, Paul turns to this thought. And we're going to look at this in detail next week. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God has given the believer a magnificent hope which will become sight when Jesus returns. Flip over to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We're going to look at just the first four verses. We could look at all of chapter 21 and chapter 22 if we wanted to. Just look at the first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I don't know what you've been told heaven is like. Many have carried around in their heads notions of heaven that make me squirm. The first thing to notice about the believer's eternal home is that it is a new heaven and a new earth. It is not described in ethereal or amorphous language. It is a new heaven and a new earth. At Easter, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul's talk of our resurrection bodies. We will have a physical existence in heaven. We're not floating six feet above the pavement. 
Heaven is a place where you will hug one another without face coverings. Heaven will entail a new earth. Earth is like this one, just new. Now, if you think about it, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, this earth would have more than sufficed. The bodies that God gave Adam and Eve would have sufficed. Because of sin, God's first earth, this earth has been subjected to decay. So let's imagine... Let's imagine an earth that has not been subjected to decay. Let's imagine resurrection bodies perfected. I've only ever tasted freshly picked strawberries grown from corrupted soil using corrupted taste buds. What will it be like when the new heavens dawn? I have only ever taken in corrupted fall foliage with corrupted eyes. What will it be like when the new heavens and the new earth dawn? But what about this mention of no sea? For a beach bum like me, this sounds like an enormous disappointment. Well, you know, if you're reading this, if if the sounds of a new earth without any sea or ocean or lake or beach or any body of water sounds off, keep doing some more Bible study, particularly if you're in the book of Revelation. How is sea understood in this book? Long and short of it is this. The sea is often a reference to the origin, the pool from which arises cosmic evil. You can read about this in chapter 4, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15. So rather than commenting on the hydrological properties of the new heavens and the new earth, God is saying there will be no evil. There will be no source for evil. No trials, no afflictions due to the ungodly world. There won't be any ungodly world to deal with in the new heavens and the new earth. So I am quite confident there will be water in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be oceans and beaches. Now, I have only ever experienced corrupted beaches with corrupted senses. What will that day be like? Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, keep in mind, this is a vision The Apostle John was given about the end of history. And Revelation 21 is the climax of the end of history. And what does he see? He does not see individual souls rising up and escaping the material world. You don't see individual souls escaping earth and going to heaven. What do you have? Heaven coming down. Again, we looked at this at Easter. When Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul called him the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's the first fruits? Well, it's exactly as it sounds. The very first strawberry that ripens on the plant, right? You pick it, yeah, it's a first fruit. Is that the only one? Well, if you got rid of the rabbits, no. There will be more. There's more to come. In other words, Jesus' physical bodily resurrection is the first installment of something to come. The first installment of what? This. This. Heaven is a new heavens and a new earth in which we will have bodies and environments suited for a bodily existence. 
Now, I don't think we're meant to see the city coming down to dwell inside the new heavens and the new earth or in like some part of the new heavens and the new earth. Apocalyptic literature doesn't typically meld metaphors together so that you have one picture. Rather, it shifts. Here's one metaphor. Here's another metaphor. You're not meant to, in your head, draw a cartoon that puts all those together. Here's one, here's another, here's another, here's another, here's another. That's how the book of Revelation, that's how apocalyptic literature usually works. What what, what God is doing, what the author is doing is allowing readers to get um, glimpses of different facets of the same reality. So you can think of heaven as a new heavens and a new earth, or you can think of it as a new city. Now for for, for the people of, of, uh, the Jewish people, what was Jerusalem? It's the dwelling place of God. This is where he resided. Now, in some of our Western literature, the city, city is portrayed as a cesspool of iniquity. I know some people who feel that way, which is why they prefer to live in the country. Uh, but in the Bible, a city can be that. It can be a reservoir of evil, but it can also be a, a, a place of great beauty and blessing. Over the years, some have half-jokingly said that Revelation is a tale of two cities, Because it contrasts two symbol-laden cities, Babylon, proverbial for pagan idolatry, and the New Jerusalem. So imagine a city with perfected people, creating perfect systems, perfect transportation systems, perfect structures, nurturing perfect relationships. This city, the New Jerusalem, is then described... As a, with another metaphor, a bride beautifully dressed for wedding day. Here's the reality, Christian. True believers make up the church, which is called the bride of Christ. The church right now, we are engaged to be married to the groom. Right now, we are engaged to be married to the groom. John is describing wedding day. This is an incredibly powerful way of describing the climax of human history. Weddings are the ceremonies wherein souls and minds and hearts and bodies are knit together in in joy and intimacy and pleasure. And God is saying to us, the weddings you've seen, the wedding you've been a part of, are only an indicator of what's to come. They're only an indicator of the kind of joy, intimacy, and pleasure that we will experience when the church is united to Christ forever. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, God has been talking about dwelling with his people since, since early on. Leviticus 26 says, God is speaking, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. But in this last stage, Revelation 21, the same language, I will be their God, they will be my people, is ratcheted up to such a place that the intimacy is so great and God is so much present with them that it is unthinkable that any residue of sin or decay, judgment, loss, or death will prevail anymore. And I think we can go farther than this. Several weeks ago, we pondered the eternality of the tripersonal God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed. The tripersonal God is ultimate reality. 
And more than that, they enjoy a relationship of perfect love. The tripersonal God has always been infinitely happy. In this imagery, we are told God's people are being married to him. A marriage makes two people one. In marriage, a man and a woman become one flesh. The new heavens and the new earth is the one fleshing of God and the church. In other words, on that day, believers will be brought into the very internal life of the tri-personal God where we will know and experience for the first time what it is to be infinitely happy. Why is it critical for us to ponder that day? You know, it's important to realize the book of Revelation was written for and circulated among persecuted Christians. At the time of writing this, Christians were experiencing some of the most intense economic and physical persecution in the church's short history. And so what does God do to help them on their way? He gives them the book of Revelation. And he gives it to them to be a life-transforming, living hope. God gives these persecuted Christians the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. And it is a simple fact of history that this tactic worked. It worked. The generation that followed the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, in the years that followed that, those Christians took suffering with poise, peace, and hope. They faced what few have faced and did so with courage rarely seen. In fact, the watching world grew more intrigued by the early Christian movement because they watched how these Christians faced intense suffering with with courage and poise and said, these people have something. Look at what they're enduring. They've got something. What did they have? They had this, the hope of a new heavens and a new earth. That's what they had. You see, human beings, we are absolutely hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. Some years ago, I heard a tale about two men who had been captured and thrown into a deep, dark dungeon where they were to suffer hard labor for 10 years. That was their punishment. Just before they went into that deep, dark dungeon, one of the men discovered that his wife and child were dead. The other man, just before he went in, found out his wife and child were alive and safe and waiting for him. And what happened? After the first couple of years, the first man just wasted away, curled up, and died. The other man endured and resisted and stayed strong and walked out a free man 10 years later. They experience their now in completely different ways because of what they believed about their future. Did you hear that? They both experienced an identical now, but they experienced it in different ways because of what they believed about their future. Your present is controlled by what you believe about your future. What do you believe about your future? 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Let's pray. An indescribable future awaits us, Father. And it's all because you poured out your mercy, grace, and love on undeserving sinners. With deepest gratitude and profound astonishment, we praise you. We plead with you on behalf of those who are on the outside to break through their hearts of stone so they will bend the knee before you, surrender, and follow Jesus. With great anticipation, we look forward to the day, Father, when you will wipe every tear from our eyes. And we will know what it is to be infinitely happy. Oh God, I pray that you would impact the way we experience our now based on this glorious future reality. We pray these things to Christ our Savior and Lord. Amen.